here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today are my co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. I'm glad that there's finally a horror movie out there that delves into the nerve-wracking disgust that comes from somebody else using your sex toys. Because let me tell you, like... No matter how many times you wash them afterwards, you always knew it was inside somebody else. See, I thought you were going to say the disgust of having hair, because hair is awful. We should all be very bold. Oh, God, hair. Just of all the things from the old world that needs to be removed, it's like deity worship and hair. Yep, make me just just smooth. Smooth and shiny. Also, say hello to my other co-host, Mike. How's it going, Mike? Good baristas are hard to come by. So seeing True. one wasted with murder, murder most foul, because it's a barista, a good barista, who is chatty but not too chatty, but always knows your specials. Seeing that wasted is possibly the most villainous thing ever committed to film. I really appreciate that, like, two minutes before we started this intro, we're all like, we agree. No spoilers until after the warning. <laughs> and then Mike immediately starts with a spoiler. <laughs> You shouldn't have said it to me. That's the problem. You set me up. <laughs> Don't take the cookie, Mike. Oh, no, he's taking the cookie. It's what I wanted. Ha ha ha. He's taking he's no, flushing the cookie room. down the toilet. Not only is that is that wasting the cookie. No one's eating the cookie. It's going to back up the toilet. <laughs> Just a mess. What a mess you've made, Mike. For shame. Folks, uh, sorry about that. You've been very lightly spoilered. For the new movie, The Stylist, which has just premiered, uh, I think it's exclusively on Arrow's streaming platform right now. I think that's the only place you can find it. Uh, I've been hearing great things about that platform. I think you can get like a free seven-week trial just for basically going to their website. So I uh, highly recommend that. The film itself, uh, last thing I'll say before we jump into spoilers, pretty good. Right? I think we're all in agreement on that one. Yeah, very good. Pretty this is our quick non-spoiler review. Is just saying it's good. <laughs> we can talk about spoilers. It's too late. They, I mean, they've already listened to you spoil the opening. Folks, if you want a little bit more than that, the film centers around a hairstylist who seems mild-mannered, but at night, I can't say anymore because of spoilers. I'm already trapped. Is Mike, would you consider the first two minutes of the film a spoiler? I mean, I'd like to think someone is able to watch a trailer. People get mad about trailers now. I know plenty of people that will walk out of a room with a trailer's playing. They just, they the go off like a this movie does not here. give anything away, in my opinion. All right. All right. Sinister Stylus. We'll say that much. Go watch the movie. <laughs> Sinister That's a terrible description. I hope someone from the film right. listens to this. No, they'll be embarrassed. Uh, they'll think I'm an idiot. Well, I guess it's good to have that out in the open. Anyways, I'm assuming you've all returned now from having watched the film. We can get into spoilers. A better description of the film... I think the first thing that came to my mind was Psycho. But in that film, the whole twist that Norman Bates is actually a psychopath and he's murdering people is, is the big twist at the end. That's what you're building towards. In this movie, uh, the fact that the stylist is actually a murderer is revealed in the first couple minutes of the film. It's it's never a shock. It's never played up to be just psychological. Like, is it all in her head? Uh, it's It's kind of like watching a movie about the Titanic. You know where it's going. 
And part of the thrill is watching that final collision. Well, the stylist is, finds itself neatly like between like two overlapping subgenres, which I really enjoy in horror, which are the uh, introverted girl slowly loses her mind movie and the uh, serial killers last hurrah movie, which are two subgenres that do have a lot of overlap and have a very familiar pattern that uh, this, this movie exploits very well. I think uh, Mike said it best whenever uh, we first watched this film. Movies like this are just slow motion train wrecks where you have the you pretty much have the idea of exactly where it's going like within the first few minutes, but all of the tension comes from knowing that the dominoes are going to fall no matter what you do and just being powerless to stop any of it as as uh, just a passive viewer. Yeah, it's it's where the it tension comes from for sure. It reminds me a little bit of uh, like the format and the joy of watching like a Tales from the Crypt episode, so anything EC Comics, where that you know what the final ghoulish twist is going to be, but knowing it doesn't ruin the fun. Obviously, a Tales from the Crypt episode is is super super uh, camp. You know, it, it's very funny. It's intentionally so. This one is played more seriously, but it still has that kind of ghoulish twist at the end that you, you you're waiting for. You know it's coming, and that's to me, the fun of it, just getting to finally see that reveal. Yeah, exactly how it how it unfolds. There, there, there was a genre of horror movie in the 70s and a little bit in the 80s, but it, it kind of predates slashers, where it's more of inside the demented mind type of movies. It's stuff like uh, Maniac, um, what is it, Afraid of the Dark or whatever it is, um, When a Stranger yeah. Calls is a really great one that this um, actually reminds me more of this than even Maniac. Um, where Maybe when a stranger calls back, a little bit of the second one, the second half of that movie, anyways, when it dives into their weird Hannibal-esque serial killer. Yeah, um, cause that was a time where there was an examination of the killer as the main character, but not in an exploitive way. It was just this: you enter kind of this world of madness, and that's really where the horror comes from. There's a little bit of sympathy for the killer. But you you know it's going to end badly. You kind of know where it's going to end up. And this was like a great hearkening back to that type of movie. As I'm fascinated by that genre that kind of that just existed for this very short period of time. And Stylus does a really amazing job of going back to that very delicate balancing act that those movies did of having sympathy for what is essentially a monster, but without falling over the edge into, you know, full-on protagonist territory where you necessarily feel them. It, it's going for an understanding, and that's kind of where uh, the horror of, the, uh, of it comes from, is just knowing what they're capable of and seeing their struggle. And there's something... And when you, uh, the more you get to know them as a person trying not to kill, it's the same for Maniac. When a Stranger Calls, to me, is, was really great about this because um, that played the killer is very sympathetic, where a lot of it is the struggle of you feeling that you want the character to actually overcome their own deficiencies, their own evil and killer instinct. And seeing them fall further and further actually becomes hard to watch as the as the plot goes goes on. It makes me think of, you know, the, the idea behind a Greek tragedy is that each character has 
a tragic flaw, which is what undo, undoes them in the end. Even if they're a decent person, they just have, you know, let's say too much pride. This one, I don't know if I would say it's one of those films where it's just, oh, if only, you know, she didn't do X, everything would have worked out fine. This one, it always seems like it's building to a dark ending and there's no escape from that. Yeah. Uh, what it really reminds me of, actually, when I was thinking about this earlier, was uh, George Romer- Romero's uh, Martin. Yeah. It just it really sticks with me that these two would be pretty good back to back. Just the idea of it, it's people that don't quite fit in, but they still have to ingratiate themselves with others because one, they want to, and two, it allows them to kind of express their darker desires. And boy, there's just so much in Martin where it's, He's a very sympathetic character, and you know what's going to happen. You know it's going to be that twist in the end where he thinks he's a vampire, so he gets a stake through the heart. It's almost foregone when you start the movie. You just know it has to go that way. You start a movie called The Stylist, and you know the the killer's MO is scalping people and putting on their hair. You've got a pretty good idea that uh, any big social function she's working for is not going to end up well. It's uh, not foreshadowing. I don't know what the literary term for it would be. It's just it's doom, I guess. It's kind of like a character as a Chekhov's gun. Like that first scene, yeah. she goes <laughs> up go, on yeah. the mantelpiece, and then you just wait. It's Chekhov's psycho. <laughs> and I will say, well, the thing that really got to me about this movie, we've talked about the ending quite a bit, which is a great place to start, uh, is is just, <laughs> one, there's a lot of anxiety for me getting my hair cut. I, I absolutely hate getting my hair cut. I bought my own razor during uh, the whole pandemic deal as an excuse so I would never have to go get my hair cut again by a professional. Not that they do a bad job. I just find it incredibly unnerving to have to, to talk to these people that are talking to 40 other people that don't care or having the same conversations over and over. And it's, it's, it's a little too intimate. Like they got their hands running through your hair and stuff. And they're close to you. They've got scissors. Oh, I don't yeah. like it. So for this movie, it's like, oh God, oh no, they do want to kill me. I was so <laughs> happy during that opening scene because it, I had never seen filmmaking captured the unsettling intimacy of a haircut before uh, especially whenever women are cutting the hair of other women because a salon is such an at times overly di- overly familiar and overly intimate setting even compared to like just regularly having your hair cut there's a certain uh there's a certain like unwanted invasion because like Every single hairstylist usually wants to know about your personal life while they're holding your life in their hands. <laughs> yeah, like I, I certain... went to a barber shop where, you know, they do a straight razor shave and it's the same deal. So the woman's like, oh, just relax. I'm like, I don't know. This seems like a bad idea. You've got a wet cloth over my face and then you're pressing a razor against me. And I can't I've seen see. Dracula. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know what you're up to behind that cloth, but I don't like it. Plus, I, I don't think it was fair. Is that is it a normal thing when you go to get your hair cut that they're giving out glasses of wine? Because I've apparently been going to the wrong place. At some of it, at some lady salons, yes. I, I'm pretty sure any of the barbershops that uh, you and I frequent, Cody, will not going to give out glasses of wine. Though I cut my own. The hair. last place I went to was like a car dealership. Like they gave out little mini bottles of water while you're in the waiting room. But uh, I, I think that's as far as it went. Yeah, the, the the tone in, like, more upscale, like, rich white lady salons is very bachelorette party, which <laughs> always makes me immediately uncomfortable. White lady is the, yeah, that's the thing to zero in on with, with, with these type of places. Rich white lady. Which, which, is another, which is another thing I thought was very interesting about this movie's perspective, because it doesn't really go into, like, any kind of like racial or like class territory 
with its story. Like, uh, Claire isn't necessarily prese- presented as this super put upon, like, have not who's like lost in this world of, you know, rich, of trendy upscale people. Like, there's a little bit of that in stuff like, uh, the club sequence later on, but I like how it's, it's never really presented as like, here's this poor person, like going into this world. She doesn't belong and being scary. I like how the alienation uh, that this movie plays with comes from a place that's so much deeper than that. Cause that movie could have easily gone to that direction and been perfectly fine, but there's something so much more rewarding that it's about alienation and isolation that surpasses even like class structures or like any kind of societal walls. Like Claire is isolated and uncomfortable about people and uncomfortable around other people for reasons we never fully know, but we can tell whatever those reasons are go right down to her soul. And And now she's in an environment where no one is going to be sensitive of that. I, I like how the horror like, comes from that. And we get those, I would say, pretty relatable moments, too, where after she feels like she's goofed up somehow, she'll retreat back to a, a private area and have a, a small breakdown where she's accusing herself of being so stupid. And then after that, she has to lash out and almost try and take someone else's identity. There's that, that wish to kind of be someone else to escape from yourself. Yeah. I'm not confessing to any scalpings or murders. <laughs> Yeah, I should start the statement with that next time. But it's it's very Cody's really, getting like, rid of all of his mannequin heads. Don't worry, we have that on tape. One, all but one. Uh, but there, there's. I mean, that's just human, right? Like you fuck up, and you just know, like, oh, I said something so dumb back there. Everyone, everyone hates hates me. They don't want to talk to me anymore. And you just wish you could be someone else so you could just start fresh. Like, just go into a witness protection program and start your life over because you said something stupid on a Zoom call. The 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 scalping stuff was uh, interesting kind of extension of a lot of like hardcore crippling social anxiety of wanting to escape and be somebody and want to just wanting to be somebody different just taken to this like extreme abhorrent place of you know definitely all stemming from somewhere but it's it's presented in for for people with social anxiety or inability of social cues and whatnot it's a coming from a place that you can kind of recognize and what what was so like amazing to me about kind of the final scene is the before what happens happens and she's just cutting the little girl's hair. It's a very quiet little moment that you're not even really focusing on. the The movie itself isn't really focusing on that happening, and there's no sense of danger to her cutting the little girl's hair or anything. And you clearly there's nothing else going through her mind. She's just doing kind of a nice thing that comes natural to her of just being nice and being attentive. And yeah. it's tragic she has in a moments. way. It's not like she's always a monster, which I like. You know, there, there's different yeah. modes to it where it's soft. And then it's only when there's that break, that schism that happens. But it's this almost tragic moment before she commits this other murder that crescendos the film where, oh, that's her. But she's incapable of seeing that's her. And that's what's so fucking sad about it right before she then tries to become somebody else once again. It's like she just could see herself, but in her... In her darkest of moments, he's only ever to go into that into that room beneath her house and try to see herself as other people because she cannot see her own self. Right. That that opening scene is kind of the thesis for the entire thing. We always want what we don't have. Yeah. Even though, hey, you might actually have it. You just you can't see it. 
Yeah, one interesting change uh, that I noticed between the uh, 2016 short film that inspired this and the final product is in the short film, Claire has these terrible burns uh, across her neck and the side of her face that uh, you see her like trying to cover up and feeling very self-conscious about at the end, which is like a which works fine for the short film. Like it's a very clear, like, okay, I don't need a backstory. Like I can psychologically connect the dots here. But I was reading an interview uh, with the director, Jill Six, uh, who said the reason she and the writers dropped that was because it was sending a, the opposite message to the audience that they were wanting to, to send with the scarring that's saying, oh, well, this person does, this person is unconventionally, hurt and deformed in a way that the audience uh, well, understands is out of the ordinary and would give anybody like social anxiety with the scarring removed it is 100% psychological because the idea they were going for wasn't that there was something like very visibly like wrong with Claire she is perfectly fine the way she is and is perfectly likable and perfectly attractive. There's nothing unusual about her at all. But again, like you said, her inability to see that leads to her monstrous behavior. So it's it's less a movie about like someone who's broken, trying to fit in with society, and that brokenness leading to murder. It's more just about like shitty body image and yeah. shitty self-realization. I do, that's a great point. I do I do like that a lot. Because think of how many movies there have been where it's the hideous, ugly witch or evil, you know, ugly person is really the monster. Every deformed slasher out there. And no, I mean, I love those movies, but it's kind of nice to see one where it's not a physical deformity that makes you think, oh, this person must be messed up. Uh, The actress who plays Claire Nahara Townsend is a beautiful woman. So it's just one of those things where it's, oh, it must be something else entirely, some sort of past trauma or who knows what. But it, it wasn't it's something as bad as, oh, she she looks different than us, therefore everyone hates her, or she perceives it that way. And I think it would be kind of easy to easy to say this may be like a a poor representation of real mental illness. But I I would argue and just to address that. Um not that I don't think anybody's brought this up, but I, I do think it's an interesting thing to address that while yes, the the character does murder it, but comes from a place of clearly very realistic mental illness. I, I do think it's an interesting extension of reality into kind of unreality to show in this very horrific way what people feel who deal with that. Well, it's a good way to juxtapose Claire's altered perception of herself, possibly, versus yeah. the the perception the audience has without having to do something really, really bold, big in your face and, and kind of obnoxious. It's a, it's a great step to kind of have those two contrasts. Yeah, I really appreciate how much real-world, like, psychology goes into, like, Claire's portrayal as a serial killer. I, I like how you don't, get the, you don't get the impression that there's this giant bloodbath going on that you're only catching glimpses of. Like, it, like any other serial killer, it seems like Claire kills people every now and then. Yeah. On occasion, and, things build up too much. Like and like any other product killer, she doesn't seem to take any pleasure whatsoever out of actually hurting people. Like her fixation is entirely just on the body and what the scalping represents to her. Yeah, it's it's sad. 
Like, I, I think that's what's so interesting to me about it, and as kind of a, of a play up of very real mental illness, is that it's sad. Like, when she kills people, there's no kind of splatter joy in it. Um, it's not, it never feels exploitive necessarily. The, it's like a the first kill is the, the first kill is the closest you get to it because you don't know her yet. But as it goes on, it's sad whenever she kills, not just because, and not just sad for, the life she's taking, but she almost feel like she wants to stop so badly, but she can't. She wasted a perfectly good barista. <sighs> but no, going off of that, it's like, these people aren't all people that have wronged her, that are bad people or anything. Some are sympathetic to her, some are nice, some are just normal people. And it's just wrong place, wrong time kind of positioning, I think, for a lot of the victims, which is interesting. Oh, it's so tragic to watch those scenes between her and the barista at the beginning of the movie and, like, be able to tell clearly... If she just sat down and talked to this woman, they'd probably go on a date together and have a good time. Plus, and, and we do get the sense that Claire isn't killing these people for fun in any sense. It's not like she's having a hell of a good time ripping their heads off. Uh, the fact that she knocks them unconscious to the point where they don't even notice that they're being skinned kind of shows, I would say, some level of sympathy towards her, her victims. Yeah. You know, she, she feels like she has to do this, but it's not, the cruelty isn't the point. Well, it's strange. She's killing them because she appreciates them so much. Yeah, which is interesting because that... one of the girls in the wedding party makes fun of her, and then when she, you know, goes to try and kill her, it doesn't it doesn't come to fruition. So that's like the one time where it's actually like a revenge killing is when it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I love how there's absolutely no cathartic violence uh, in this movie, which is, is something I I always uh, kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth if you're not going for like pure turn off your brain fun. I like that there's not a big moment of Claire, like, settling the score with somebody where, like, the audience is on their side. Like, like Mike said, it's always the worst thing in the world when she kills. Olivia and, was, it was yeah. taking her husband from her the whole time. It was a long con. Yeah, like, I even, like, with the, again, with the side plot with the barista, people miss that character. And her absence leaves a hole in the world, and Claire is surrounded by reminders that she took someone's life for no good reason. Yeah. And when she does, when she dresses up like the hooker to, to go hunt, essentially, you know, after that is when she has, like, a complete breakdown. Like, it doesn't release anything for her. Like, I, I think that's what's so interesting about how murder is handled, is it's ultimately always empty for her afterwards like she she puts on the puts on the hair and tries to pretend to be somebody else but it never works it never does anything it's just always empty and she gets more and more frustrated that's why she tries so hard to to stop she tries to make it symbolic with the way she stops with the with the key and and closing everything off but it's still just there underneath just rotting away at her I do have to say, I, I think we need to celebrate and applaud, though, that Claire was smart enough to figure out how to avoid all the stress of wedding planning. You just <laughs> no. show up as the stylist and then replace the bride last second. You don't get to make the choices, sure. You don't get to pick the dress. But just think, you don't have to You don't have to hire the caterer. You don't have to pay for all that stuff. You don't have to worry about the RSVPs or choosing the cake. Actually, choosing the cake is probably the fun part. I don't know. <laughs> I've never been in the position to be married, so I don't, I don't know what the cake tasting process is, but I assume it's kind of fun. But most of it seems well, like a hassle. So really, hats off to Claire for gaming the system. Uh, my dream is now to steal someone's wedding. It's the ultimate con. <laughs> you want to corpse bride it, Jimmy? It'd been awesome if no one noticed. <laughs> they just rolled with Surprise, it. Surprise, bitch, we're married now. Give me alimony. 
<laughs> this is the third time this has happened to me. God dang. <laughs> just imagine she stole his glasses. So he's like, all right, this is how it is. <laughs> like Mr. Magoo in this situation. It's just, whoa, I guess I'm married now to a new woman. <laughs> Our version of the film would not be very good. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, just a, I, I want to bring up like a little like writing point that I really liked in the movie, like super early on. It's um, it's when Olivia, uh, you first introduced to Olivia, and she's she's running and she comes home, and her fiance had gotten her a a treadmill so she wouldn't go out so much, and that way she can just run at home. She doesn't take it because she she likes going out to run, like that's her thing. She has no interest in the treadmill, and that is such an amazing subtly deft piece of writing because it says so much about why claire is so obsessed with olivia in many ways claire has no sense of self sense of where she is and she can be so easily molded based on what other people want and olivia is steadfast and confident and is where she wants to be and Using just that one little treadmill scene is able to like communicate all of that. I'm I'm so impressed with that little bit of writing. Yeah, in a movie that never goes too deep with any characters like uh, backstories or internal thoughts, there are so many like nice moments like that where a couple of sentences speaks volumes about the characters and where they come from. Like I love the moment between Claire and Olivia towards the end where Claire has, like, upped her creepiness factor to a noticeable degree after uh, after that sequence in the nightclub. And Olivia tries to explain to her why she's being weird with the understanding that she's clearly the kind of person that doesn't understand social boundaries. Yeah. Which says so much about Olivia as a person that she's not stupid enough to to not notice that this person is clearly troubled and doesn't understand social situations, but she doesn't read anything sinister about that. She just, when the evidence is presented, she may, comes to the conclusion that this person is very different and just needs a stern talking to. And I, I like how it, in any other movie, it would be so easy to just have Olivia be an idiot who doesn't notice the very strange person in her midst or just ha do the easy scene of, and then she yells at her and calls her stupid and she runs away crying. Yeah. Like, again, it adds so much to the eventual tragedy of the death and also just gives you yet another scene of, of Claire having an easy out. Like, this is a character who has opportunities to change her life and have real relationships with people and get help. But every time she's met with one of these situations, she just doubles down on everything. I was too distracted by uh, the numerous times Claire was in someone's house she shouldn't be in to pay attention to good writing because I was too like, <laughs> get out of the house! What are you doing? I don't care what movie it is. If someone goes into a house they don't belong in, I'm always like immediately putty for that film. Like, oh God, no, it's too uncomfortable. I don't know. It just goes in my head. I have no good excuse to get out of that situation. I would not be able to bluff my way out of being like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in your house. I thought it was mine. Like, I couldn't do it. <laughs> just, uh, I thought I saw a I, cat I, a window. Like, it, yeah, I couldn't do it. I, yeah, I'd just be like, I have to kill you just because this is too embarrassing for all of us. James Stewart <laughs> made me do it. Um... <laughs> 
every time I watch scenes like that, I, I'm constantly trying, I'm constantly thinking of ways that, I wonder how I could talk myself out of this kind of situation. I couldn't do it. I just know, I haven't even thought about it that hard because I know I'd fuck it up. I can't, I would just be, they would kill me there and be like, well, I stood my ground. Now, what you do whenever a stranger walks in on you masturbating in their bed is you turn to them coldly and say, this is my house. I think you need to leave. Just what do they say to that? You just assert dominance. Like, just go go full Mulholland Drive on them. I think you should just be aloof. Like, you know what? You caught me. I don't belong here. I'm the Midtown Masturbator. You'll never take me alive. <laughs> there, there's nothing. Uh, you know what? I'll leave. But just let you know. It's really easy to get into your house, and uh, I think you should probably do something about that. That's right. Yeah, You're make welcome. it their fault. Good, good, good way to victim blame in that case. Just make it, make them feel bad that you're breaking into their house, and that's how you escape. That's so good. Do you think that would have worked in Monster House? Do you think like they, they like the house would let them go <laughs> if they shamed the house? Why do you eat so much? Wow. That shamed the house. Listen, I, I think I love Monster House. Let's all agree. Little problematic. <laughs> Okay, we got to get away from Monster House. I don't want to talk about that anymore tonight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mike is so disappointed. He had like 20 minutes of material already prepped. That was a good... One thing I would love to see more from horror films is characters invading people's homes, but not for sinister reasons. There is yeah. some... Like, a character going into a house and just fucking around with stuff is so much scarier than uh, there, there's a dude with a knife who's going to stab somebody. I, I think I told you guys a story before uh, where uh, the, the guy I hated the most in my life, Patrick just walked into my apartment one time and just hung around because he didn't realize I was in there. Oh God. So the full story of it is uh, I was, I was in my house in, in, in I was sharing it with a roommate and I was just in my room with the door closed, like the lights off. I don't know, like taking a nap or something. And I hear the door open and the door closes. And I don't hear like light switches flipping on or anything. I don't hear like my roommate. He's, he doesn't say hello. He doesn't. It's just obviously not my roommate. It's just spooky quiet. Like someone is just now standing in the house because they realized the door was open. And they could just walk in. And so I'm now terrified because I've kind of woken up from a nap. And I'm just like in my, my room, like I'm not going out there. And this standoff goes on for five or ten minutes when I eventually hear a different door open, like the side door opens and closes. And and uh, but my roommate Bob gets back, you know, like an hour later, and I ask him, like, hey, did you stop back, like, forget your keys or something? And he's like, no, I haven't been home since, like, this morning. <laughs> and, we just, and we just found out that, like, yeah, if we didn't lock the door, there was a guy who could just, like, walk in, kind of hang around uh just waiting for you to show up so we had someone to talk to and it was the goddamn scary shit of my life cody i um i just want to i'm very sorry to break this to you but you died that night oh so that explains the everything this is definitely hell yeah satan he's pretty clever i i like he truman showed me i really wouldn't expect a <laughs> pandemic in my hell that's clever i thought like more brimstone this guy's got it you put a pandemic in my hell you put anymore. a hell in my pandemic <laughs> Why am I getting the goober of, pan of hell? <laughs> so yes, anytime I, I see a scene like this in a movie where someone sneaks into someone's someone else's house, I'm always like, oh god, I know this fear. Like, I have felt it. This is awful. It's like, you can't quite imagine what a car crash is like until you've been in one. And then it's like, oh, these are the worst. No one should be in car crashes. Why do we allow this? I thought they were cool before. I mean, James Bond makes them look pretty cool. Oh, you got me there.
So, uh, before we wrap up, there's one thing I do want to talk about. As we, we talked a lot about like uh, the movie from a screenwriting standpoint, I am in love with how randomly gorgeous this film is, both with its cinematography and its score. And we, oh, I, yeah. I have to assume this this couldn't have been like a ten million dollar picture or anything either. I have no idea what the actual budget is, but I'm always impressed when something looks very well produced and is made very confidently for low low budget. Watch, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be proven wrong. Someone gonna be like, I don't know, she won a, a lottery and someone gave her like fifteen million bucks, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that wasn't the case. This movie was funded on a Kickstarter. Really, another Kickstarter one. Mm-hmm. That's even more impressive. Right? Yeah, it's so, like you said, confidence. Like in the way it's directed, it's well, so damn good. It's, it's. I, I would have to watch it again. I've only seen it the one time, so I, I could very easily be mistaken on this. But my recollection is there's there's very little to none uh, of like handheld shaky cam kind of stuff. It's it's. It, I don't or remember. At least it doesn't feel like it in my memory. I just no. remember very steady shots, which is it feels like in my mind it would be harder to do probably more time consuming to plan out whereas the freeform version of you know just put the camera out there and kind of walk around get the shot and it doesn't matter if you know you don't even have the steady cam going or something's fine what wasn't this feeling i got i'll probably watch this again realize i'm an idiot for saying all that <laughs> but i think that's what owed to my sense of confidence in this picture like it, it was shot very much like no we know what the shots should be and this is how we're going to get them yeah the, the way every environment is lit i i really love too from from claire's murder basement um which is just stark with lights coming in. Like, it's just a dilapidated cathedral, essentially. Uh, the club it's a layer. is... That's definitely a layer, which I love. Yeah. The club is... Oh, the way it's lit, the way the sound is designed, the way that the, the camera is used, it's uncomfortable. Just so perfect. God, and all the, ho- all the horror in this movie, that... That's club sequence is the most uncomfortable scary thing in this yeah oh god my heart was like racing the entire time i didn't even know why god, few movies can have really captured the the horror of going to a party where you don't know anybody yeah where you're clearly not supposed to be there and everyone is confused why you're there in the first place but you can't just leave and there's not even like a dog or a cat you can play with you really need a dog or a cat in those situations, or at least a hamster, something. I don't, I don't think hamsters would fare well inside of parties like that, but... <laughs> it depends. If their tubes are high up. So That's just like the theme of, of the place. Like, you go and you get your drinks, and you look up in the ceiling, it's just a big hamster city. Yeah. I, mean, I love All that. Right. I would be down for that. <laughs> I feel like they need to play softer music so it doesn't disturb the hamsters, but I, I see potential there. Just think, if Olivia had just invited them all to PetSmart, all that tragedy could have been avoided. <laughs> Why don't we have a pet cemetery set in a PetSmart? <laughs> this is an aside, but it bothers me. It feels like an obvious would be, thing to that do. That would be a good sequel. Maybe it's that prequel that's coming up. Oh, so who's going to take care of her dog? Mm. You know, I hadn't even thought about it, but uh, now the real tragedy uh, comes forward. Maybe Olivia's uh, fiancé will adopt him as kind of like a tit-for-tat thing. I like to think so. He seems like a good dude. Oh, that's that's an interesting point, though, Mike. How many of these films, like this kind of genre film, do we have people that own pets and uh, that aren't like almost none taxi- taxidermied animals, like in the Psycho Reign, or nothing to happens to the cool. animal either? Like it's right, like, yeah, they're, they're Buffalo they, Bill, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, they're not <laughs> there. To, <laughs> they're not there to like harm the pet or, or hurt the pet to to prove a story writing point or anything. They they just have a pet that they love, like a normal person. Yeah, it's amazing I, I shorthand for Claire, just like 
yeah, she takes care of the care of the dog, and dog loves her, and it, it's just nice. That was the whole exercise, like kick the uh, kick the kitten. That's what they were doing. Just it's a litmus test of the character's worth. That's why we're sympathetic. She doesn't hurt the dog. I like that dog. <laughs> Mike, can we end every review session with you talking about how much or how little you liked the pet in the film? Cody, I'm Nothing always going to like the pet. Always? There's got to be some bad pets in film. We're no. getting very far away from the stylist. <laughs> no, there's no such thing as a bad pet. The it's hyenas and the Lion King. Those no, I the like pets. the hyenas and the Lion King. They goose-stepped, Mike. Other than that. Yeah, but you know what? They would have gone along with anybody's orders. I don't think that's a great defense. <laughs> <laughs> the hyenas were just following orders by Nate Pierre 2021. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stick with the idea that the, the hyenas weren't pets. I'm going to get off of this topic now because I feel like it's already gone very far south. <laughs> Anyways, I, I guess to get us away from talking about if hyenas are suitable pets and... Well, no, actually, that's answered. Birds of Prey answered that hyenas can be good yeah. pets. I just think the Lion King's hyenas are not good pets. Those they're, were hired guns. Different. That's different. True. Yeah, Those they were independent contractors. Animals. They have no soul. Right, yeah. That's what I was saying originally, Mike. We came around. We're, you're on my side now. The black water of the animal kingdom. That's true. That's why I don't like them. Anyways. You're having a good uh, time, though. <laughs> we're, we're getting so far away from the stylist. Uh, folks, if you didn't heed my warning and go watch the movie at the start of the podcast, I, I don't know what you're doing here. That's weird. Go go watch the film. Or if you've seen it already, I don't know, go watch it again. Uh, since it's streaming, you can just keep plugging that guy on over and over again. It's awesome. I do like that about streaming. I, I Boy, do you feel bad when you love a movie in the theater and then you're like, God damn it, I'm at home now and I can't just watch it again. Yeah, you can uh, catch it now on Arrow's new streaming platform, which I think just launched in October. It's apparently already in like their top five. So uh, Stylist is gaining some traction. Sequel. Sequel. See, I don't know what it would be. But, <laughs> I'd be down. Stylist with an S. And this time it's an action film. Yeah. Uh, oh, they, they go like the night. They go to they the go layer the of the stylist. There's a queen stylist. There's drone stylist. There's a, a mech loader. Got a lot of good ideas for the sequel. Another director is a huge fan of cheesy '90s profession-based slasher movies like The Dentist and Doctor Giggles. <laughs> so I, I would love to see the stylist too. That's just like completely abandons the tone of this first movie, and it's just about Claire being like a cackling madman, just cutting people up left and right. That's true. Claire's so loose. For all we know, she got away with it. They, they couldn't find her. She had that new skull on. It's true. Everyone at home, we can't just see think. Her. She could be your, cutting your hair tomorrow or the well, Not next during a day. pandemic. Yeah, well, I don't know. People still get their hair cut. They, they wear the mask while their hair is getting cut. Yeah, well, they shouldn't. It's not for me, but people do it. Anyways, that's Box Office Pulp. I, I don't think I can say anything else without sounding much dumber than I already sounded. So thank you so much for joining us, folks. Uh, we really dug the movie, if you couldn't tell. It's out now, so go ride the wave and enjoy it while everyone else is still talking about it. If you've enjoyed this episode of Box Office Pulp, you can find more episodes on boxofficepulp.com. We're also uh, on Twitter, at Box Office Pulp. I know, very creative. Give us a like, give us a listen. Uh, you can rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. You can rate us at home and just put it on like a dartboard. I don't care. I'll feel it. I'll feel good. We're on Amazon Music, too. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> the list keeps growing. Can find Always, us. Thank I, you, folks. You can't escape us. That's also true. We're, com we're coming to your home and your home and yours. Keep watching the skies. 
I don't know. We'll also be cutting your hair tomorrow. Anyways, that's box office pulp. Get the hell out of here. And like that, he's gone. Box office pulp guy worked in a bar barber shop for a couple of weeks, but they fired him after he kept drinking that blue stuff that they put the combs in. Box office pulp guy is a stylist, but mostly just of armpit hair. Box office pulp ate all the hair on the floor. <laughs> Box office pulp guy. His nickname is the dustpan. <laughs> Box office pulp guy didn't even work there. He just would come in on all fours and start eating hair. You should see the bazaar that's in Box office pulp guy's stomach. Box office pulp guy's stomach contents cannot be digested. Box office pulp guy invested in the mouth vacuum that was supposed to come out in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too far. It's, it's my personal headcanon that box office pulp guy has so much hair in his stomach that he's making his own bazores. <laughs> <laughs> Just spitting them out and selling them to the highest bidder. <laughs> That's how he makes his Here money. Here you go. Summon a demon. <laughs> <laughs> I've missed this bit. This is a good bit. We should do this bit. Yeah, it was nice to bring back. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now, please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.